trickling in and out, but we want to get started. We've got some fascinating learning today. We can't wait to uh, learn with you with a great scholar. Very privileged to have a great scholar with you with us. Rabbanit Michal Kohen was a longtime leader and educator in Northern California, not far from us right now, serving as rabbi, federation executive director, and more. Most recently, she was the Rosh Kihila of the Prospect High School in Brooklyn. Rabbanit Michal holds a BA in Studies of Israel and Education, an MS in Jewish Studies, and MA in Clinical Psychology, and a PsyD in Organizational Psychology. Rabbanit Michal's first novel, Hachug, Extracurricular, was published in Israel by Stamatsky, and she writes a weekly Torah blog at www.miko284c.com. Now back in Israel, where she grew up, she continues to teach in Israel and, beyond, and abroad, write and complete her chaplaincy training. We have a fascinating session today on It's Hard to Raise Parents, oh, oh. Rabbi Akiva and his daughter. So with that, thank you for joining us, Rabbi Kohen, and we'll pass it over to you. Thank you very much for this introduction, and thank you for inviting me. It's very nice to be with you here in what for us is late evening, but for you is lunchtime. So uh, <laughs> this, it's all good. We'll keep each other awake. Um, so I titled this my session, It's Hard to Raise Parents, because I really believe it. As a parent and as a child, once upon a time and still always, um, I really feel sometimes it's, it's really hard to raise parents more than hard to raise uh, children. Um, just to think about it that, you know, when my kids were born, I already had X amount of years behind me where I was used to doing things just so. And through them, I had to learn uh, new things and new ways to look in the world. And I think we see some of it in Rabbi Akiva's story with his daughter. Story is famous, maybe you've seen it before. It's two stories in front of us this evening, actually. And um, hopefully we'll be able to add layers to what might be already familiar stories. Um, we know when Rabbi Akiva lives, this is uh, important because on the backdrop of having a philosophical discussion, there's also a historical reality. Um, back then and still now. So kind of without further, if it's okay with you, I'll bring up the source sheet. I'll share the document. I'm able to, right? Um, yep. And we will look at it together and hopefully enjoy the text together. We'll have the Hebrew and English side by side. And We'll sort of start with what I think is the second story. And I think the second story, historically, is the first. Um, it will hopefully get explained as we, uh, as we proceed. The first story is a, a famous relative encounter of Rabbi Akiva with the Roman ruler that is named in the Gemara story, Tuanus Rufus. The, the evil one. Okay. And Tuanus Rufus asks Rabbi Akiva supposedly a theoretical question that says, which are the greater works? Those of the Holy One, blessed be he, or those of flesh and blood? What's greater? 
what Hashem is doing or what we are doing? This can be like a, a simple question. What? It's, it's obvious. God is the God of the whole universe. He creates day and night or she, however you want it. Just using he for simplicity, no, no, nothing intended in it. Um, and this conversation should have been over in the next sentence. But Rabbi Akiva surprises Tyrannus Rufus and he says to him, no, people's actions are greater or nicer than those of God. What? Tyrannus Rufus is uh, surprised. What? Can people create heaven and earth? You can't possibly be serious that people's actions are greater than those of God. Can people do things like heaven and earth? No. I'm paraphrasing and you can see it with me. Um, Rabbi Akiva says to him, let's not, let's not talk about things that are beyond us. That's like not a fair fight. Let's talk about things that are within like our realm, found among people. So Tuanus Sufus really gets to the question that he mostly wants to uh, kind of stumble Rabbi Akiva and he asks, why do you circumcise? And I wanna say, I don't know if anyone here has this experience um, as a parent or as a mom, it's a hard question. It's a hard question when you have a, a young baby and you were practically faced with this issue of why somebody something. Um, and, uh, and why do we do this? And Tuanu uh, Sufus asked the same question of Rabbi Akiva. Why do you circumcise? Rabbi Akiva says, I knew you were going to ask me about that, right? Because we know that the Greek Roman culture is very much into human body, perfection, and the way we are naturally. And so Rabbi Akiva is like, I knew you were going to ask me about that. So this is why purposefully I told you what people do is greater than what Akadosh Baruch Hu, what the Holy One, blessed be He. And Rabbi Akiva brings him the, the famous exhibit, he brings him uh, stalks of grain and loaves of bread or cakes, gluskaot they're called, um, which we're wondering if they're connected to uh, things that are glutinous or glucosinous, something with sugar and gluten are these gluskaot. And he says, look, the grains are what the Holy One Blessed Be He makes and the cakes, the sweets, the bread is what we do. What do you think is greater? Tohanus Rufus is one trek pony. He's like a set on what he wants to find out. And he says, look, if God wants a person to be circumcised, let him be, let him be born this way. Why do we have to do it? And Rabbi Akiva says, and why does his umbilical cord emerge with him? Could have been born just like slip right out. We think that it's um, ne necessary, but why? We could have had some divine mechanism that the umbilical cord kind of wilts at the birth and the baby just comes out. So why do we have to uh, cut it when the baby is born? And he says, 
And this is what um, this that you say, why doesn't he emerge circumcised? The reason is because the Holy One, blessed be he, gave to us the mitzvot, gave us the commandments, not only to, um, no, sorry, only in order to refine them through the commandments. And he says the word refine doesn't completely um, convey the meaning of the Hebrew word letzaref. Letzaref is a process that is done to gold. It's refine, purify, bringing out gold from metal, but also bringing together. Lehitzaref is to join into something. So it's a word that plays on two things, refinement and enjoyment into the commandments, into the, the way of Hashem. And that's where the story ends. And supposedly we don't know what happened afterwards, although we do know what happens afterwards. Tuanus Rufus probably was Rabbi Akiva's torturer, if not um, the Roman soldier slash ruler who's in charge of Rabbi Akiva's um, execution, seemingly ending the conversation with silence that is not an agreement, but um, rather um, Rabbi Akiva's sort of uh, end. But is it really? Um, so what do we see here? There is, let me stop the share for a minute so I can see you. And if you have uh, questions or thoughts or ideas uh, un until now, I'm happy to hear. Um, <laughs> but I won't tell anyone who's uh, at lunch. Um, what did what did um, what what did people of that civilization believe about divinity? Like, is he just playing is is he just playing devil's advocate, or does he believe in the power of God? Okay, so we don't we don't know really if the conversation is put in his mouth, right? Like this was not like a journalist was walking behind them and, oh, what do you think? And what do you think, right? The, uh, the Midrash tells us the story in the way of Tohanus Rufus and Rabbi Akiva having this discussion, not clear what happened in reality and what didn't happen in order to make a point. It's hard for me to answer this. I don't know what exactly was their... Uh, was there belief? If anyone wants to chime in, I'm happy to take comments um, or notes, writing. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it is surprising that you would think they thought of themselves as the conquerors of the world. They were like gods themselves. Mm -hmm. They would have they would have thought that humans exceed anything of the heavens, right? As, ah. as they're the most powerful humans who have ever existed. Okay, so this is something very interesting because on one hand, on one hand, and this is part of when Rabbi Akiva brings the wheat and the cake, on one hand, Tyrannus Rufus and the Greek Roman culture behind him, on the surface, I think pretend is a hard, uh, it's a little harsh to say, but they, they present themselves as if they think nature is above all, but really, they wouldn't dream of eating grains of wheat instead of bread, right? They wouldn't dream of what sticking cotton to their body and not wearing 
linens that were processed by human beings. So on the surface, they're pro-nature, so to speak, but in reality, in their action, they are very much in favor of human civilization. So there is a little bit of a, of a flow there between what they present in the um, argument and what really happens um, on, in reality. Um, the discussion is even deeper if you think about our tradition. We, we teach in our tradition that Rome is a um, great, great, great grandchild of Anyone? You're welcome to jump in. Where did Rome come from? For, for the Ravas. Yes, Asav. Asav. So really the discussion here rings back to the conflict between Asav and Yaakov. And if you unscramble Akiva's letters, you find in them Yaakov with an Aleph, right? Like Aramaic for Yaakov. Add to that the love story between Akiva and Rachel, echoing the love story of Yaakov and Rachel that was not completely fulfilled. And we have questions about Akiva and Rachel, but it's a good story. So we'll, we'll go with that. Um, and you'll see that it's a discussion that we're replaying sort of the conflict between Yaakov and Esav. Esav also is the hunter, is the one that is like, goes for nature, um, for being out in the field. He smells like the field. He's very much kind of out there. Yaakov is the one that sits in the tent. But Yaakov, like Akiva and like Akiva's message in the story, both of them bring something. And in a minute, will try to show that Rabbi Kiva learned this something from someone else. This is back to our title of the session of It's Hard to Raise Parents. Um, that Yaakov, like Rabbi Kiva, thought that reality can be, uh, again, manipulated hard term, but can be worked with, should be worked with, that reality nature is not something just to accept and kind of fall back passively, but something to act on, to make better, to use in order to maximize our potential and who we are. Okay, so that's our kind of uh, foundation. Questions, thoughts, alternate speeches until this point. <laughs> Okay, good, we'll continue. All right. Oh, by the way, I, actually, yeah, I'm sorry, I do have one more. <laughs> okay, go. In the, uh, 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 I wanna share an idea without rejecting it, but <laughs> making clear that it's something to discuss, which is that, okay, so males are created imperfect. And so okay. males need Brit Mila to become better males. So the, in the Haredi world, we say, ah, but women are created perfect. And, you know, and that's why we can kind of keep them over here because that, you know, they're already perfect. Men need to go do mitzvot because we need to become better. 
<laughs> so how, how do you understand this idea of men being perfected through Brit Mila through a feminist lens? Like, how do you see this? <laughs> how do you see this idea as related to like how women are created differently than men? <laughs> great question. We'll do another session on that. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> um, hmm. Hmm. Okay, we'll do the next story and look at Rabbi Akiva and his interaction with his daughter and see if that helps us or doesn't help us. I, I tell you what I said in the beginning, as a mother, the issue of Whitney Law was extremely difficult for me. So um, the, when you, like, you just bring it right at me of like the perfection and women being perfect and how to understand it. So I think, women being perfect takes it a little far. <laughs> I think I would rather say it that um, we each have a tikkun, like personal, spiritual, emotional, uh, Jewish, whatever, work to do in different realms. That would sit better with me than to say women are perfect and men need to perfect themselves through Brit Mila. I think women have a lot of things to perfect themselves in a different realm or in a different way and therefore requires different kind of work. Um, I, don't wanna, I don't want a box that says as a feminist or as a rabbinite or as a this or as a this. I want to look at the text and try to see from it what we can uh, gather and then see how it's meaningful or not meaningful to us. And it doesn't have to be 100% meaningful. It can be that, oh, this is a, you know, like I like the idea that our tradition allows us to act in the world and to not accept things as they are. And we talk about this. Um, automatically, tikkun olam and all these kind of things. Where is it from? Now, you'll come and say, yeah, Jacob thought he could act in the world and then he stole Esau's uh, birthright. Well, did he or didn't he? <laughs> these are all things we can explore um, a lot deeper. So I'm just going to lay things in front of us to uh, think about further afterwards. Okay? <laughs> all right. Okay, let's go and check out the story about Rabbi Akiva and his daughter. Um, the first question is, where did this daughter come from? So that's already uh, a discussion. We know from, you know, different sources in the Gemara, Rabbi Akiva had a son, probably from a first marriage before he was married to Rachel. And I'm assuming we know the story of Rabbi Akiva and Rachel, the daughter of Kalba Savua, just nod or give me a thumbs up or something. Yes, no, maybe. Rav Shmuli, yes. But everybody else, hmm? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, kind of like this. Um, it's a beautiful love story. In you can the... assume most people don't know it, yeah. Okay, so it's a beautiful love story. It's really worth a, a movie, right? Um, about Rabbi Akiva and uh, Rachel. She's the daughter of the wealthiest, one of the three wealthiest people in Jerusalem right before the destruction of the temple. She, which is also interesting. She 
could have married anyone. She falls in love with Rabbi Akiva, who at the time is a shepherd, not unlike uh, various biblical characters. He's a shepherd for Kalba Savua, her father. Kalba Savua is named Kalba Savua because it literally means a satiated dog, Kelev Savea, where he's so wealthy that even the dogs come out feeling satiated from, uh, from his home. Um, and she, of all people in, in Jerusalem or in the whole land, could have anybody, she goes to the poorest, not knowledgeable uh, Rabbi Akiva at the time. He's not rabbi, he's just a shepherd. He doesn't know an aleph from a bit. And she says to him, if you learn, uh, if, I, if I marry you, will you go study Torah? Um, he says, yes, it's a fantastic exchange. Like what's going on there? All of a sudden the daughter of the, you know, the most beautiful, wealthiest daughter of Jerusalem comes to him and says, why did she not take someone who was already complete? It's exactly a reflection of the same idea that's here um, of our ability to do something with ourselves, ourselves and not just accept things as they are in in any level possible. Um, he says, yes, he goes to study. He becomes the great Rabbi Akiva. In the meantime, uh, her father disowns her. Um, they live with nothing, sleep on straw. He sits and collects the straw from her hair and promises her that one day he'll bring her a great uh, piece of jewelry that's called Jerusalem of gold. That's where the expression is from. Um, and uh, look it up, it's uh, <laughs> from what we think we know, a kind of a crown that's on the head, heavy gold, uh, whole discussion of whether going out with it on Shabbat is considered caring or is this an integral part of clothing? Um, anyway, many years later, first 12, then another 12, Rabbi Akiva comes back home from his studies with all his students and, uh, he tells everybody, she, the poor woman, is trying to approach him. The students push her away. He tells them, she is my holy Torah. Let her come and be close. Um, her father hears that this great rabbi came to town. He has a vow to disown the daughter and never see them again. He asks to meet with the rabbi so that he can annul the vow, the, the rabbi who... Uh, the father doesn't know is his own father-in-law, says, had you known he'd become a great scholar, would you have still done this? No, of course not. Everybody lives happily ever after, or at least until the Romans come and uh, finish this. We, we also know that Rabbi Akiva was married, potentially, a third time. So we don't know what happened to Rachel, if she passed away or something. In the, um, at some point, we, our tradition tells us that Rabbi Kiva lives to be 120 years old. And he actually um, has some relationship with the daughter of Toranus Rufus, the guy, the Roman guy we spoke about earlier. So somewhere along the way, he has a daughter. If this is the daughter of Rachel, great. She learned from mom that we can change our destiny. You'll see it in the story in just a minute. She's another daughter. The story is still good. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to read the story 
um, maybe three times. We'll see. We'll read it first, just kind of to get familiar with it. And then we'll start noticing the um, idiosyncrasies of it, ask questions about it, look at it again, and hopefully look at it in another level and see where that takes us. Good. Good. Okay. Back to sharing our document. We are now in uh, Tractate Shabbat in the Babylonian Talmud. The sages talk about whether there is what's called mazal in Israel, mazal for the Jewish people. Um, mazal a little hard to translate, but it's kind of a, uh, here we say constellations. It's not perfect. It's more like uh, luck or destiny, or you'll see there's discussion about astrology. So something that's predetermined. Does that exist for the Jewish people or not? And the discussion is uh, fascinating. Um, if anyone is into astrology and things like that, there's like what uh, characteristics of personalities are ascribed to different days of the week and different months and different hours. Fantastic. And somewhere there, we get this story. And, for, and Rabbi Akiva says that there is no constellation. There's no mazal for the Jewish people, and they tell us this story. Okay, Rabbi Kiva had a daughter, and the Chaldeans, they are people that live around the Jewish people at that time, they tell him that on the day she enters the wedding canopy, on the day she gets married, a snake will bite her and she will die. Rabbi Akiva was very worried about this. On that day, that day being the wedding day, she took the pin, ornamental pin from her hair and she stuck it in the wall, like put it between the bricks. She didn't have a table for her jewelry. She put it between the bricks in the wall and it happened that it entered into the eye of a snake. In the morning, when she took it out, the snake was pulled and came out with it. Her father, Rabbi Akiva, said to her, what did you do? She told him, in the evening, a poor person came and knocked on the door and everyone was preoccupied with the feast and nobody heard him. I stood and took my portion that you had given me and gave it to him. Rabbi Akiva said to her, you performed the mitzvah. And he went out and taught, based on this incident, a verse from Proverbs. Tzedakah, loosely translated as charity, but not really. Tzedakah will save from death. Not only um, from strange or unusual death, but from death itself. The end, and here is our modern version of Rabbi Akiva and his daughter, kind of, not really. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning and try to unpack it and point out, as we said earlier, the idiosyncrasies or like the, the strange things about this 
story and let's see how much deeper we can get into it. So, okay, we're talking about whether there's predestined, destined, um, prescribed, I don't know, fate in the world for the Jewish people. Rabbi Kiva now tells the story about, or not he tells, the storyteller tells about what happened with his daughter. So what's going on? Okay, he has his daughter, great. And the Chaldeans told him that on the day she gets married, a snake will bite her and she will die. Now, we don't know when they told him that. Could have been that when she was born, they told him that that's what's going to happen. What would you do if you're, God forbid, the parent of this situation? What are some possible reactions? Rabbi Akiva does. You can unmute and... uh, and respond. Rabbi Akiva does what every good Jewish parent would do. He worries, which is very interesting. Rabbi Akiva very much worries. And what would you do? What would a parent do? God forbid when you're faced with this situation where these astrologers tell the parent On the day your child gets married, they'll die. What do you think? A snake will bite her and she will die. Maybe. Can people unmute themselves? Maybe the parent should not let the child get married. That would be reasonable. Maybe the parent should say, especially, right, the Jewish Rabbi Akiva parent, we just saw him arguing with Tyrannus Rufus, he should say, astrology is nonsense. So what if the Chaldeans have some strange prophecy? Nothing, means nothing. But it's really hard to say it means nothing when it has to do with your own child. It's very scary. On the other hand, it also doesn't tell us that he told her. There's, he feels like he's a little bit on a bind. He can't do anything. He, it's like, can he change her destiny? Can he change someone else's destiny or just his own? He's, all he can do is be very worried about this. It's very strange. Um, Again, astrologers, great rabbi, um, commentator, believes in the almighty God. And yet when the astrologers come, he's worried. Now, notice this, the storyteller of this Gemara does something fantastic. Now that we've already read the story, what would have been the right order if we told the story in the order that things happen, what would have been the right order to tell the story? Hint, not like it's told. We should have said, okay, he had the prof, but he, he got this prophecy, let's say. He was worried. Let's say he's worried for 20 years, 18, 22, 16, whatever. He's worried, great. Then there's the wedding whatever happens at the wedding. Then there's the night after the wedding. And then there's the morning after the 
night after the wedding, right? That would have been the chronological order. Yes. The storyteller of the Gemara jumps a step. It tells us, it takes us to the day of the wedding itself, to the night of the wedding, and tells us what happened. Indeed, there was a snake. She took the pin out of her hair and she put it in the wall. She didn't know nothing about this. This was just like her place where she kept her jewelry. She put it in the wall and it's fantastic. The, the Gemara says, itrami. It's like, it so happened to be. Just by sheer coincidence, there was a snake right there in the wall and her pin went right into the eye of the snake. And in the morning, when she comes to take it out, all of a sudden there's a snake dangling behind her and when she comes to breakfast, right? Now, try to, try to picture this, this whole situation. Her father, interestingly, asks her a very uh, precise question. He doesn't say, um, wow, this is strange. He's, he's not, well, if anything, he's surprised, not at the fact that she comes down with a snake, but at the fact that she comes down at all, right? I, I'm saying comes down. She comes out of the room. She was not supposed to come out alive on that morning. Once she does come out, he asks only one question. What did you do? Back to Rabbi Akiva, who argues with Tyrannus Rufus, and that's why that story was important to us. It comes back to him that there is a way to make a difference. She must have done something. But notice, she had to do whatever she was doing without knowing she's going to manipulate her destiny. She had to do it without knowing she's going to manipulate her destiny. Okay, then she tells him what she did. In the evening, a poor person came and knocked on the door and everyone was preoccupied with the feast and no one heard him. That's a strange description of a wedding for the bride. When she says everyone was preoccupied, who should have been the most preoccupied on that day? The bride, we might think. We might think that the bride was preoccupied on her wedding day. But she says everyone was preoccupied with the feast until nobody heard him. I stood and took, and now notice the amount of prepositions in this uh, one little sentence. I took my portion that you had given me and I gave it to him. Lots of words. She could have just said, I gave him food. A poor person came and I gave him food. She gives him something that she got from her father, but that her father seemed to have forgotten because just now 
he has this um, moment of enlightenment. And he says to her, wow, you performed the mitzvah. And then he makes a drash. And the drash should be very surprising. The drash, like the, the expansion or the teaching on the verse is what the verse itself already says in the pshat, what it says in its simple meaning. He says, Tzedakah, not really charity, but like doing the right thing, saves from death. But that's what the verse says. So what did you learn here, Rabbi Akiva? But then he adds and he says, not from strange death, but from death itself. Now let's read it again. Questions, thoughts, and uh, um, ideas that are starting to flow through our mind as we look at this at this story. Is there a way to make the screen bit the the word document bigger so we can see more of the text right now? I can do more English. Is that helpful? No, like like the bottom part of it. Uh, like, can you make the whole screen? Yeah, yeah. No. No. Just the font, no? No, like we can't, we can only see the first two boxes. Um, so text smaller. Oh, there we go. Now we can see the bottom two boxes. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. You want the picture? That's <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Oh, but no, no, if you can make it bigger now, but yes, there we go, there we go. Okay, so that you can have the whole thing all at once. Yeah, there it is, yeah. Okay. All right. Thoughts so far. Ideas. All of a sudden this thoughts looking like more than what it is. Okay, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Who's missing from the story? Because sometimes we're very focused about what there is. Let's mother. think about Okay, so mother is missing. Good. Who else is missing? <laughs> All right, let me give you a hint. It's her wedding day. <laughs> Yeah. Hassan. Where's the groom, for God's sake? He's not part of the story. And this is interesting because think about, think about Disney stories. Think about um, the princess and the, um, what is it? Frog or toad or something like that. There's always a groom. There's always some uh, handsome prince who saves the princess. Not in the Jewish story. You asked me earlier about feminism. If anyone's a feminist, it's this Rabbi Akiva's daughter with Rabbi Akiva here. It's her wedding day and there's no groom. Further, the, her father doesn't tell her what to do. Her father doesn't tell her anything. He doesn't come and say, listen, there's a terrible prophecy against you. And you know, you can do something. Why don't you give more tzedakah? Why don't you do nice things? Why don't you do mitzvahs? He presumably doesn't say anything to her. He's worried. 
by worrying, he actually leaves the stage to her. She's an independent entity. She doesn't rely on anyone. She doesn't take advice from anyone. I don't know if you remember um, the, the princess and the frog, right? She, she has to kiss the frog. Do you remember a story like this? Uh, Grim Brothers or something like this made into a Disney version. Um, the princess there, not that Rabbi Kiva's daughter is a princess, but kind of. Um, the princess there plays with this golden ball and the golden ball falls into a pond and uh, out of the pond comes a frog that uh, wants to bring her back. Hope I'm not messing up the story. Uh, promises to give her back the ball if she um, gives him a kiss. She's like, really? I have to kiss frogs? Okay, and of course... A lot of sentences uh, on this that one has to kiss a lot of frogs on the way to the prince. But okay, when the frog slash toad comes to the house with the golden ball, the father says to her, you promised, you have to fulfill your promise. The feeling there is much more of the passive princes. Think about so many um, Disney movies, they've changed recently and their heroines become more like uh, Mulan and others taking their own destiny to their hands. But the old heroines were very much passive, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, all that, lying down and the prince kisses them and then they come to life. Rabbi Akiva's daughter doesn't have anyone. Her father, all he can do is worry. There's no male figure, if you will, that tells her, what to do protects her, nothing. On her wedding day, she says, everyone is busy. She's the only one that's available to notice what's going on. This is also very interesting. Um, what worry does to us. Rabbi Akiva potentially so busy with his worry, rightful worry, he doesn't say for a minute that the astrologers are crazy, uh, stupid, or wrong. The fact that he's worried means that he, he believes them. He's so preoccupied in his worry, he forgets that there is something to be done. But, there is a but. What I said to you earlier is that that something that needs to be done cannot be... Um, so to speak, purposeful. We cannot say, excuse me, we cannot say, I'm gonna do tzedakah so that I can change my destiny. That doesn't work. That would be manipulative. The, there's numerous places where we say we can't calculate, one of them saying of the fathers, we can't calculate the um, uh, cost or uh, reward for the mitzvot once ag one against the other. That would be terrible if we could. We would be like, okay, um, I'm missing a few points, let me do it. We would use the mitzvot as being a manipulative act and not an act of kindness or an act of coming close to Hashem and close to our potential. So this is, this is a 
like a crazy Jewish place to be while we're taught that we can change our destiny. We're also taught at the same time in the same breath that we can't be manipulative about it. We can do things, we can act, but we can't, we can't do those with the purpose that there'll be the desired result that we want. Okay. Um, Every one of the verbs here has uh, meaning, such as, uh, especially in when she, let me highlight, when she uh, encounters the poor person, and then the rabbinic stories, there's always this poor person. There's like somebody coming to the door from the outside to knock at the door and um, try to get our attention when we're preoccupied with something else and don't have it. Everybody's busy. In Rabbi Akiva's home, everyone is busy. Everybody yeah, thinks the mitzvah is to rejoice with the bride and groom. It's true. It is a mitzvah. Rabbi Akiva on his end may be so worried, the worry clouds his um, ability to see. Only she, who's really like the the free person, free agent in the story um, is able to open herself, open the door, hear the person on the outside, hear the call from the outside and act on it. And what she gives him, what she gives the poor person is the portion that her father gave her. Is it food? Or is it the ability to hear another person, to be open to what's asked from us in the world and to act on this? We don't know. It's the, whatever it is that was in her plate, spiritually or physically. Um, okay, thoughts until now. Anyone has any, uh, anything that comes to mind? Hi, uh, Rabbi. Um, Hi. I have a question. Um, how does Rabbi Akiva's experience give him a unique insight uh, to change uh, destiny? And maybe, like, how did his daughter change his perspective? Yeah. So this is uh, something I said in the beginning that I think, and we don't know, right? The, the Gemara is not, while there are references to historical events, it's not 100% a historical book. But I would like to suggest that this is the first story historically and that Tyrannus Rufus is the one afterwards. And that here he gets a reminder through his daughter because he he's, he's almost shocked, I think, to see her in the morning, right? Of all people, he knows that her wedding day is the last day he's gonna see her. And um, when she comes, he says, what did you do? It brings back in him this uh, um, realization that you can do something to change um, the destiny that's like written in the stars, right? We were talking about mazal. We were talking about things that were destined. And what's interesting is that that verse in the end, the proverb verse, 
really he's like, oh, wow. I finally understand the meaning of the verse that appears in the Proverbs. That's the drash. Drash means that you expand on the verse, but it's almost as if until now he didn't fully understand this verse. Now, I want to take it a notch further. When we see these kind of uh, symbolic, I'd like to say, um, aspects in rabbinic stories, it should throw us back to other places in the Torah. So who do we have here that should take us back to another story like right away? There's somebody. <laughs> There's somebody slithering through the story, right? The snake. Where do we have a snake? Back in Gan Eden. All of a sudden, if you will, there is another layer to the story that almost comes to, um, I don't know if to say correct, um, adjust, amend the story of Gan Eden, the story of what happens in the Garden of Eden in the beginning of the Torah. Because we have a snake. A snake is very um, poignant when it shows up in, uh, in rabbinic story. Now look at what she does. Um, could be a little R-rated if you, if you want to read it this way. She takes her pin, and she puts it in the eye of the snake. What is this snake business doing here? What is the snake at all from the beginning? Um, if we think of our Bereshit, uh, of our Genesis story, if we think of our story from Genesis, the first dialogue we have in the Torah is that of the woman with the snake, serpent, Nachash, same thing. Before then, Adam, when he's so happy with the woman, he says, oh, this one, a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's not saying anything to her. She's just like, oh, wow, this is great for me, he says. Not, it's not talking to her. It's not, hey, Welcome to the garden. Let me show you around. The first time there's a dialogue, it's the woman with the snake. There's a lot of issues around the story of Genesis. And for that, we will have to take uh, another session because our time is almost coming to its end. But really, the idea in the dialogue is that a person gets out of their self to interact with another. Here, the woman curious, interested in the world, opens up to other things around her, able to have a dialogue with the snake back in the Garden of Eden. That dialogue, I don't know if ends well or not well, it ends in a challenging way. This dialogue ends differently in the kind of conquering of the snake. How many layers does this snake in the Garden of Eden have? Um, what exactly is the 
the transgression, where is the serpent taking them back then? In some way, out of their element, if you will, out of their innocence, is there a hint of sexuality here? I'm not at all equating sexuality with sin, but it's definitely a discovery of a new world. It's a discovery of a new world here for the girl, daughter, who gets married. It's her first night to go out of her innocent father's home into another world, which makes it even more significant that the groom is not here. How does she handle this new world that she's exposed to? How does she handle this snake she's in dialogue with? Seems like she handles it by herself. She is um, capable, independent, strong, not passive, um, and, and uh, kind of not even alarmed. I'm, I don't know what any one of you will think if you put a pin of a hair in the wall and in the morning you wake up and you're like walking down. <laughs> Again, I don't know why down, walking to breakfast with your father. And that, yeah, it's a snake. I'm fine with it. She clearly encounters, or it symbolizes that she encounters something out of the ordinary, something that has the potential to be dangerous. And she's totally capable to, uh, to deal with it. If you talk about, you asked me earlier about feminism. I think she has something uh, to teach us and how she handles her surrounding, whether the most simplistic level of her encounter with a poor person, and she's open, confident, able to share what she has, or whether it's her encounter with that night of the wedding and able to uh, kind of get the snake right in the eye, <laughs> the seeing, right, organ, which Rabbi Akiva was not able to see what to do. And she was, and in that, in a sense, she's teaching him and uh, helping him re-see or re-strengthen his philosophy that we, by our actions, can make a difference in the world around us. And what he says, his, his uh, insight into this proverb verse, all of a sudden he realizes tzedakah doesn't just save from strange, or what does it say, unusual death, from death itself. Now, how can it be? Ultimately, none of us lives forever. Then we have to go back and ask, what is death? For him, perhaps, I want to suggest, death is just giving in, giving in to destiny, giving in to fate, not acting, not being active, not being involved in the world. Tzedakah, not in the sense of charity, but in the sense of doing what's right, is able to overcome this inertia, overcome this, I have no choice, I just have to put up with it. Can go against it and thereby give life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for any last minute additional uh, thoughts, questions, uh, ideas uh, for this. Yeah. 
to this story. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> or it's all obvious. <laughs> or it's like, oh, what did she say? <laughs> okay. Um, in summary, I think, what I want to suggest to us is this fantastic, challenging, uh, kind of a, almost razor edge place that we that we teach or our way of life teaches. We teach, if I can, this is all uh, <laughs> with a grain of salt. Who's we? What is teach? Okay. But we have a belief that we can change reality, that we don't take things for granted. And at the same time, we can't, so there's like, we don't believe in uh, deterministic decisions. We can make a difference. But on the other hand, we can't be manipulative about it. We have to do it sincerely, get up, open the door, see what's outside and see how we can act on it. Okay. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so rich. Give us so much to think about. It's such an honor to learn with you and um, give all new meaning to these texts. So thank you so much, Ravani Michal Kohen, and thank you all for joining. And thank um, you very we, can't, much. we can't wait to continue more learning with you all soon. Thank Have you for being with me. Thank you very much. <laughs>